Lord God, um, we first of all want to remember our brothers and sisters in Tulsa and in Charlotte as this open wound has just added more salt and acid. And there is much pain and much hurt. And we ask that your church would be a light. And that, Lord, you would bring healing through the cross in the pain. Lord, open up our hearts. Teach us how to love. Help us, Lord, to be patient and kind. Open your word now to us, may ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word from 1 Corinthians 13. This is just verses four uh, through seven. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, we started with Jonah today. And, you know, the point of Jonah is really meant to do the boomerang. Did the boomerang hit you? It's meant to make you laugh. It's, as, as I described it to somebody this week, who was, I was meeting with a pastor, and he was pretty upset at his congregation, his congregation didn't feel like it was getting it. And I said, well, maybe you should talk about Jonah, you know, because Jonah's got that boomerang, you know, effect. And, and, you know, we're talking about Jonah. He just said, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Jonah's just ridiculous. He doesn't get it. And that's us. We're like that. It's meant to be a mirror. That's us. We love other things. We love pity. We pity a plant. And God cares about entire cities. And my hunch is that as we consider this passage, love is patient and kind, that you really would like your spouse to hear this message today. And if your children here, you'd really think, boy, I, my children need to hear this message today. And there's probably some kids here that are saying, man, I hope mom and dad are listening this, mo- this morning. There's somebody that you really want to hear this message. And the reality is we need this message more than anybody You bring up the subject of anger with Christians, and almost everybody has the same response. Man, that's an area I need to work on. That's like universal. Anybody feel like they just got it mastered? I mean, I mean, I, I, I am calm, cool, and collective. That's what my dad would say before he flew off the handle. You could hear it coming. Um, Tim Keller in his book on marriage says the main barrier to the development of a servant heart in marriage is this radical self-centeredness of the sinful human heart. Self-centeredness is a havoc wreaking problem in many marriage and it's the ever-present enemy of every marriage. It is the cancer in the center of a marriage when it begins and it has to be dealt with. And then in the next chapter he says in Dana Adam Shapiro's interview of divorced couples it was clear that this was the heart of what led to marital disintegration. Each spouse's self-centeredness asserted itself, as it always will, but in response, the other spouse got more impatient, resentful, harsh, and cold. In other words, they responded to the self-centeredness of their partner with their own self-centeredness. Why? 
Self-centeredness by its very character makes you blind to your own while being hypersensitive, offended, and angered by that of others. The result is always a downward spiral into self-pity, anger, and despair as the relationship gets eaten away to nothing. And you could say it's ridiculous. It's the Jonah syndrome. Everybody else is the problem, but not me. I'm angry enough to die. Well, Jonah must have repented because we have the book and we have the book of Jonah. So we know that God changed him and he's able to laugh about himself and pen those words for us. And he's not done with you either. If his spirit is at work in you, he has promised that he's going to conform you to the image of Christ. And so a study on love is so that we would become more and more like Jesus. Love is personified in 1 Corinthians 13 because love is a person, ultimately. This should point us to Jesus. And so we're going to look at what love is and what love is not over the next several weeks. First of all, I mean, look at the text. Can you see what love is and what love isn't? It's seven things that it is, and it's actually, my, I did, my math wasn't very good. It's actually eight things that it's not. So love is patient. That's number one. Love is kind. That's number two. Love rejoices with the truth. That's number three. Love bears all things. Number four. Believes all things. Number five. Hopes all things. Number six. Endures all things. Number seven. That's what love is, according to Paul. What love is not. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Those are eight things. Jonathan Edwards, who I'm going to be using as a resource, and I encourage you if you like to read it all, that's a great book called Charity and Its Fruits, and you can read the sermons online or buy the book. But he summarizes love as patient and kind as as love suffering, suffer, it's suffering long, which has respect to the evil or injury received from others. That's the first part. And then being kind is to respect, which has respect to the good to be done to others. So the one is a reaction. It's a reaction to sin. That's the first part of what love is. Love is patient. Love suffers long. So the first thing love is, is a reaction to when you feel violated. It's a, it's a reaction of patience rather than anger. But the other is responding now, not just not a negative reaction, but then a positive action, which is kindness. So love is patient and kind as a contrast to selfishness. Selfishness is impatient, it's devoid of grace, compassion, and kindness. If you consider the Proverbs for a moment, there's a contrast between, lots of contrasts, but the wise man and the fool, just in relation to anger and patience, they're contrasted. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So are you a stir or do you quiet? Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. What are your triggers? Triggers are, the, you know, this kind of 
question that they ask, you know, things that, that lead to fight and flight responses. And I'm not one of these super smart guys that knows the different parts of the brain, but apparently there's the way your brain responds. There's a front part and a back part and a middle part and all that other stuff. But the reality is when you get angry, you're responding with the front part of your head. And it's a fight or flight response. And, you know, this, this book I'm reading right now by Gottman, who's not a believer, talks about being incapacitated to be in any type of you're incapacitated for any type of argument, any type of rational thinking. Once you enter into the fight or flight mode and you're now, boom, you're full on. Someone just shot adrenaline into you. You're incapacitated. You're flooded is what he calls it. And it takes 20 minutes. You're 20 minutes, you're done. You just need to, yep, remove yourself because you're not going to be able to think, act, behave rationally when you go into that front lobe thinking and it's fight or flight and you're just, you're angry. Well, what are those triggers? If you want to know what your triggers are, ask a good friend, ask your spouse, ask your children. Some of us may clam up and some of us are blow-ups and anger has different manifestations and for some it's like Blitzkrieg, it's World War II and we are coming fast and hard, but others it's more of a Cold War. And I'm just not going to talk to you. I'm going to ignore you, okay? And that's like, you know, the Cold War. Well, Cold Wars don't, don't typically last. They do lead to usually all-out wars. And, I mean, the book I'm reading, Good and Angry, I mean, there's a, a married couple that this guy, David Pallison, counseled. They had a gunfight in the house. She had a rifle in the basement. He had a pistol upstairs, set of stairs between them and drywall, and they're shooting at each other. And the neighbors got scared and called the police. And they came to them for counseling. And uh, that was serious. Um, I know of another couple I heard about that, that what he would do was just go downstairs when he was mad at his wife and he knew where the power breaker was and had to turn the main off and she didn't. So he would just turn the power off and they would just be in darkness. And that was his way to you know, really make his wife pay for you know, his anger. That was a real cold war. I mean, literally cold war in the wintertime. Um, so what are your triggers? I mean, I'll give you a few of mine just to help you get a grasp on what are, and a lot of times they're related to money and time. And I'm starting to see this. I don't leave margins. And my wife's been telling me this for years. But when you don't leave any margins, and now you got to get out the door, and I can't find my keys, and I can't find my wallet, and it's because in my instant mind, I think, well, somebody has cleaned up and has fixed things better so they're rearranged better, and it must be her fault when it should, never is, but here's what happens though. Then the car is low on gas and now you're gonna have to get gas. You forgot something and one of your children tells you that they forgot something, you need to turn around and go back. And I'm sure right now, love is patient and kind, right? You got no margin and now you're just, and then your wife asks you to do a favor and you get behind a school bus. And now what happens? You just start to, you know, boil over because you didn't leave any margins. Then you're hungry. You drank too much coffee. You got the jitters, and I get, the, I get these crashes. And if I haven't eaten, and now I've drank too much coffee, and now I'm behind a school bus? You don't wanna be in front of me. 
I mean, one time I just kind of was boiling down on Route 95 because it just is terrible going south. And we were on a family trip vacation, and Kim could just see me just... And she finally just graciously said, you know, maybe you should just pull over and let me drive. And you know what? I did. And once she got in the driver's seat, and I just... Because it, it was just closing in. All the traffic just closed in, and it was just... This is ruining our vacation, you know? What, what, what are your triggers? Those are a few of mine. How about I'm on the phone and, and one of my children or my wife wants to tell me something. That's a trigger for me because I don't, I don't multitask. So if you're trying to talk to me and our, somebody's already talking to me on the phone, I get angry because I can't hear both conversations. Now I'm hearing neither and I get frustrated. I call my children for supper and the third time no one's even in the kitchen. I know that never happens in your home. How about you can't find something that's important to you? It's lost. I've lost two Kindles. I've given up on the Kindle world because I just can't keep them. I lose them. My children are not getting along in the back seat. He hit me. She pinched me. He kicked me. She licked me. (laughs) And now I'm driving or I'm stressed out in traffic. And I just have one of these, you know, Jackie Gleason moments, you know, zam, boom, to the moon, you know. And I mean, I could go on and on with these, but how about when you don't have much money? Things are really tight because you don't have much margin. Be wise, young people. As you start life, leave margins. You get a house that's a little too big, and now there's more stress, marital stress. Because now when that bill comes up and now a car breaks down, or something big happens like the water heater's not working, or, and all these things, they begin to add lots of stress. And that's a trigger. Something gets broken, something gets spilt, something doesn't work, something doesn't start, something gets ruined. The dog gets into the trash, the dog ate something nice that was on the table for lunch for everybody. You know, these things, I mean, this is real life we live in, right? And these are, these are, these are actually smaller ones. On the deeper level, what you promised me is not what I got. And now we start to, I mean, I, went, I was, I was kind of almost like in orbit for a week with Verizon this summer. And, and I, they had been a great service to me for, and I would let them know every time that I called them, which was more than probably both hands of, I've been a faithful customer this many years and this is what you promised me. And, and now that I actually entered the world of cable and it was a disaster for a week until they fixed the problem, and then the first bill came, and it was still wrong, and I just go kind of into orbit, and I'm sure I was not patient and kind. I mean, if they'd have asked me, what do you do for a living, I would have been <laughs> embarrassed, because I was angry on a deeper level still. When somebody um, begins to attack me more on a personal level, or I take it personally, you don't like the message or content of my sermon. And you begin to shoot me an email or have some comments about where you disagreed. And I just assume, well, God and I are on the same page. And so if you disagree with me, then you must be touching the Lord's anointed. I mean, it's the, you know, I mean, that's, that's a little bit of pride. Hello. We do that in all areas, though. Where, where does it hit home to you? I mean, if your spouse disagrees with maybe how you're running your business, 
That's going to hit home, isn't it? Um, And perhaps you feel on a deeper level violated, betrayed, lied to, deceived, or cheated. Now love suffers long. Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, has some really excellent definitions. And I'm going to give you the definitions, but I want you to see a scale. And a scale that moves from love to hatred. Okay? It, It doesn't take a whole lot to move from here to here. It's a subtle road that happens quickly. And so here are the steps. It begins with impatience. Impatience, Bridges defines as a strong sense of annoyance at the usually unintentional faults and failures of others. This impatience is often expressed verbally in a way that tends to humiliate the person who is the object of the impatience. So that's the first step, but impatience gets uglier and proceeds downward from complaint to criticism. Now, this isn't Bridges. This is more Gottman, where he talks about, and then we start using words like, you never, and you always. And when we do that, we become revisionist in our recollection of history, and we're, you, you never, and you always, really. And then comes out this awful, awful statement. Here it is. What's wrong with you? It's probably the most unkind an impatient thing that you could probably say to somebody, except if you put in a few of the cuss words that often go with it. That's a horrible thing to say because it's not building others up. It's really tearing them down. What's wrong with you? You're, 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 you've moved from a complaint to a criticism of the character of the person. And then impatience moves towards irritability. And now this person is becoming irritable. And now they're starting to have this negative override that's starting to interpret. And this irritable person is somebody you have to be on tiptoe or walk on eggshells because they have a short fuse and dynamite is going to explode the building at any given second. I grew up in a home like that where it was, you know, my dad worked midnight shift. And if he didn't get his sleep... Or if you woke him up in his sleep, it was dynamite. God changed him. You know what changed my dad? He read through the Bible in a year. And he didn't just read the Bible. The Bible read him. And he was a different person. He still has his issues. I mean, we all do. But he, he is not the same person because God changed him. We're to make every effort here, folks. That doesn't mean make no effort or make little effort. Make every effort to grow in patience and kindness. This is important stuff. This is what kills marriages. This is what kills families. This is what causes kids to say, I'm out of here. This is real stuff. Moving down from impatience to being irritable is resentment. And resentment is anger held on to. And resentment moves downward to bitterness, and bitterness is defined as resentment that has grown into a feeling now of ongoing animosity. And now the roach motel of your home not being complete until the devil really has his way in is animosity growing to enmity and hostility. And Bridges says enmity and hostility denote a higher level of ill will or animosity than does bitterness, whereas bitterness may to some degree be marked by polite behavior. 
Enmity or hostility is expressed usually, is usually expressed openly. And it is in the form of denigrating or even hateful speech towards the objects of our animosity. We just went from love to hate, just like that. Started with impatience, moved to complaint, to criticism, to bitterness and resentment, animosity, hatred. Where are you this morning? Is that how God treats you? God is long-suffering. I heard a, a sermon this summer, and I don't remember a word the pastor said except this, and this just stuck home to me. Love is always the appropriate response. Love is always the appropriate response. You might not remember anything else in this message. Remember that. Love is always the appropriate response. Yes, there is a hard side of love and a soft side of love, but Ephesians 2 comes before Ephesians 4.15, and you always got to live out verse 2 before you even move to 15. And verse 2 says that we're to bear with one another in love, in all humility and gentleness. Then we can go to 15, which is to speak the truth in love. Otherwise, we're going to speak the truth in disgust and anger. So what is love? Love is patient and kind. It's this Greek word makrothumia, which means long desire. And let me just give you a couple lexicon definitions because I think they're helpful and they're different. Little and Scott, lexicon, to be long-suffering. You have to get in your mind that we are going to suffer in this life. If you're not willing to suffer, there's no way you can have any patience. You will not be able to be patient. So the first thing is, it's long-suffering. Thayer's lexicon, to be of a long spirit, not to lose heart, hence to persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles, to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others, to be mild and slow in avenging, to be long-suffering, slow to anger, slow to punish. Isn't that how God treats us? That's what Jonah was so angry about. I knew you were long-suffering. I knew you were gracious and compassionate. I knew you were everything that I'm not, and that's why I'm so angry. Freiburg's lexicon defines this patience, and I like this. It says, with an element of expectancy, wait for, have patience, James 5, 7, and then two, with an element of constraint, be patient or forbearing. So let's think about this. There's an interesting connection in the Bible between patience and waiting and hoping. If you don't have hope this morning, waiting becomes more and more despairing. Wait, waiting and hoping are sisters. They always show up together in the Bible. Look for them. We sang Psalm 130 this morning, Martin Luther's translation of Psalm 130, but I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen made for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there's steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There's hope that's the bedrock, and now I can wait because I've got the big picture. So we can be patient because we know, look how God has been so incredibly patient with me. So I can be patient towards others. I mean, we did, I did this, had the privilege of doing a wedding yesterday. 
And John Pickens, he was a pill. There was a time in his life, I mean, if you were here when he was in youth group, and I mean, he, he was a pill. And now I look at this man and what the Spirit of God has done in his life to change somebody and make him a radical lover of God, radically unselfish. And God has just changed that, that man's life. Now, I probably would have written him off if I was his youth worker working with him in, in high school, you know? But we can't do that because we have to have the big picture, love is patient. Look at how the two are used interchangeably sometimes in the Bible. For example, the NIV in Isaiah 40, 31 says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint, right? Then you look at the ESV and it says, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Same Hebrew word, but it can be translated either way because the two sisters, well, they always show up together. So sometimes it's translated wait, sometimes it's translated hope. They're that similar. Romans 8, 24, in this, in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. They go together. And notice how it goes together right in this passage, the bookends of love. Love is patient, and how does it end? Love always hopes, always perseveres. There's the sisters showing up again. It always hopes, always perseveres. So we have to renew our hope continually. What's the enemy try to take first from you is your hope. And if he can take your hope, well, then you're going to become impatient. So just as waiting and hoping are sisters, here's two brothers, meekness and long-suffering. They're brothers. We can't be humble, okay, if we're impatient. They don't go together. You see, one of the many children of, of pride, and pride has lots of offspring, but anger and impatience are the first two. Consider these verses again, Ephesians 4, 2. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you were called, that's verse 1, and then verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. There's the brothers showing up together. And then Colossians 3, 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. There's the brothers showing up again, bearing with one another. Or how about Ecclesiastes 5.8? Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Look at the contrast. Patience is being contrasted not just with anger here, but of pride. Edwards put it like this, Jonathan Edwards. A humble spirit disinclines us to indulge resentment of injuries. For he that is little and unworthy in his own eyes will not think so much of an injury offered to him as he that has high thoughts of himself. For it is deemed a greater and higher enormity to offend one that is great and high than one that is mean and vile. It is pride and conceit that is very much the foundation of a high and bitter resentment and of an unforgiving and revengeful spirit." So what's underneath the impatience and anger is pride. So I was reading um, this summer, one of the wonderful things on the sabbatical was to get to read some books. Well, I read this book um, called Calvin, John Calvin's biography, and it's by Bruce Gordon. And there's a part where he really shows Calvin and all of his light and warts and all, and he, and he compares 
he looks at two different friends that were close to Calvin, and one was William Farrell, okay? And William Farrell is the guy who stuck his hand under Calvin's chin and told him that God, may God curse everything you do if you don't stay here in Geneva and help me with this work. I mean, that's how Calvin got his call to ministry was the bony finger under his chin of Farrell in Geneva when he was just passing through, gonna stay the night, fleeing from France, and Farrell finds out he's there, knows he's brilliant, needs help, and so he tells him, God, may God curse you, everything you do if you don't stay here. I mean, that's typically not the motive we would use for people. So a little bit about this guy, Pharrell. He was kind of like scary. So this is how he's painted. He was a prophetic and highly de divisive figure who led the Re Reformation, the French-speaking lands of the Swiss Confederation, and carried the movement to Geneva. In the course of his preaching campaign, this is Gordon's own words, churches were damaged, Priests were publicly mocked, and the people warned of God's fury at their idolatry. He was a man of, of confrontation. I mean, one time he went into a Catholic church and locked all the doors, wouldn't let anybody go out, and then proceeded to take over the service and rail on everything that was wrong with the Catholic service, with the children, ladies, and men present. That was his way to do ministry, okay? Lock the doors, here I come. That was Pharrell for you, okay? Um, so he divided with his aggressive methods. Well, he was having a terrible influence on Calvin because Calvin and, and Pharrell, they were sent packing, as you remember. They were kicked out of Geneva. And a big reason was because Calvin and Pharrell were not very gracious. Uh, they were obnoxious in many ways. And so when they brought Calvin back later because they recognized his skill, they said, no Pharrell. You two can't work together because Pharrell brings out the worst in Calvin, okay? So Calvin might have been doomed in ministry if it wasn't for Martin Bucer. So Martin Bucer, who's 18 years older than Calvin, when Calvin had to leave Geneva, he went to uh, Strasbourg, and they put him with this seasoned pastor. And Bucer showed him what love is patient and kind is like. And so early in his first Geneva ministry, Calvin fired off this angry, rather uh, impudent message to his future men mentor, to Bucer, and he condemned Bucer for his perceived meddlings in the conflict in this burn controversy with the, where another minister was deposed, as well as he accused him of having a theological drift towards Luther when it came to the sacraments. And so Gordon says about the letter, that the letter revealed this Calvin who he'd spent too much time with Pharrell. But Bucer's response was moderate but firm. He conceded no ground and argued that what he had done had been out of love. And the effect upon Calvin to this letter was, this is his words, Gordon, the effect was devastating. After reading Bucer's reply, according to Calvin, he was dumbstruck and humiliated by his own overweening pride, crashing to despair on account of his impatientia, which severe impatience. He could not sleep and was agitated for three days. Calvin's fragile disposition was clearly exposed. He had had the gall to admonish an experienced man in the church and been taught a lesson in humility and generosity of spirit. So later when Calvin goes to work with Bucer after he was kicked out of Geneva, another story comes up with a guy named Caroli whom Calvin and him were at odds theologically and personally, and Calvin heard that Pharrell had embraced Caroli and declared that their enmity was at an end 
and Calvin was incandescent with rage, according to Gordon. So they bring these guys together, Caroli and a couple of the other men, and, and Bucer is there, and they bring Calvin to the table, and, it's a, and the text says that Calvin lost his temper spectacularly, and he said, this is Calvin's own words, I sinned grievously and not being able to keep within bounds, for bile had taken possession of my mind to the extent that I poured out bitterness on all sides. There was certainly some cause for indignation, if only moderation had been observed in expressing it. He stormed out of the room. I mean, imagine, this is, this is the hero of the church. This is John Calvin storming out of the room like a little kid. Well, Bucer followed. He followed him, and when he'd soothed me by his gentle words, he brought me back to the company. And Bucer brought him back in again. You see, if it hadn't been for Bucer, there probably wouldn't be a Calvin as we know it. Bucer saw something in Calvin. He saw he was brilliant, but he needed to grow in love. And so we need to be good examples. And even someone like Calvin had some real rough edges, and he struggled with these things throughout his life, as the book brings out. And so where do we get the humility this morning that we need? We're going to have to close because we're we're out of time. But let me just say this in closing. We have to remember how incredibly gracious and merciful God has been with us. And I think too often we quickly forget how gracious and compassionate God is. Um, when I went to uh, Christ Community this summer and I heard Matt Roberts share the story and preach on, he shared the story of his own car accident. Some of you may have heard Matt's story, but Matt Roberts, when he was in seminary and they had their first kid, um, he was making a left-hand turn and the car behind him braked nicely and the car behind him was going way too fast and couldn't swerve to the right, swerved to the left. And so Matt's just making his left-hand turn and he gets creamed on the back driver's side and his car is flips over and he has no idea where this car has even come from. And he has a child in the back seat and he can't get out of the car. And he starts feeling gas dripping down on him. And his baby is hanging from a stroller behind him. That is a shot of adrenaline. And when that shot of adrenaline kicked in, when they finally got out of the car, he said he was the angry, I mean, he was angrier than he's ever been. And I won't use the words that he used, uh, but he wanted to know who hit me. I mean, he was in a rage, you know, because, you know, he's protecting his wife and his child, and he thinks they're going to burn up in the car and they get out. And his point was that very feeling of that kind of anger, that's the anger that we have provoked God with. That's what we deserve for our sin. And that is what Jesus got on the cross, where anger is appeased because it's poured out on the sun that should have come towards us. So if you're wondering why should I be patient and kind because this person really doesn't deserve it and they continue to do this and it really bugs me and you don't understand my story, my story's different than, than you. It's not. Our story isn't different than the gospel story 
of our offenses are so much worse than anything anybody else has committed to us. So we can suffer long because Jesus suffered long on a cross and took the wrath of God for us. Let's pray. Lord, use these words from Paul, Lord, to change us. Lord, we move the bar down low of what we think is acceptable and good. And Lord, it has been raised high for us to see that love is patient and kind. And so often we are not. And so we ask that you would forgive us, that you would fill us with your spirit, give us compassion, and may you renew our hope and help us to grow in meekness. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond and sing in Jesus, I thy cross have taken.